in her book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Anybody, uh, anybody need, a rook, uh, need to read a book on how to do nothing? It's a, it's a productivity book, if you can believe it. <laughs> how to do nothing. Uh, in, in this book, the author, uh, Jenny O'Dell, who's a, a visual artist, she talks about going to see the San Francisco Symphony uh, perform the work uh, by composer John Cage called Songbooks. And it's, it's this experimental piece of, I don't know if you can even call it music, it's really ambient sound. And, and so the musicians, if you can call them that, they, they're not wearing their fancy tuxedos or their fancy clothes, they're wearing just normal everyday clothes, and they, they're on the stage and they mess around with everyday noise-making objects, like a typewriter and a deck of cards and uh, a blender, Okay, so this is a piece of music <laughs> composed. And, and so in the absence of what people would typically be used to in a symphony hall, the audience is uncomfortable. There's this awkward silence. People are clearing their throats. You hear coughing. Chairs are, you know, scraping on the ground. And, and it sort of builds this tension in the people who are there, which that tension actually becomes part of the composer's, um, his piece of, of art here. And, and then the, the performance culminated with the conductor of the orchestra, Michael Tilson Thomas, uh, uses the blender to make a smoothie, and then he takes the smoothie and drinks it on the stage and makes this satisfied face. And, and you know, we're not really familiar with this in Eureka. This is not part of our culture. But if you go to a symphony, uh, it's very, you have to be really quiet and, and you have to be very reserved. And it's not, you can only clap at certain times. But at this point in the performance, when, when the conductor drinks a smoothie and sighs a satisfied sigh, um, Jenny O'Dell, she says, after that, all bets were off with laughter tumbling down from the seats toward the stage and integrating itself into the piece. And Jenny O'Dell continues, more than just the conventions of the symphony hall were broken open that night. I walked out of the symphony hall down Grove Street to catch the Muni and I heard every sound with a new clarity. The car's the footsteps, the wind, the electric buses. Actually, it wasn't so much that I heard these clearly as that I heard them at all. How was it, I wondered, that I could have lived in a city for four years already and never have actually heard anything? For months after this, I was a different person. In the same book, uh, Jenny O'Dell, she talks about the, the work of this artist named David Hockney uh, from, from the UK. And, and when David Hockney, when he eventually started working with photography rather than with painting, he shied away from the typical snapshot, which, which takes less than a second of a shutter click to produce an image. But Instead, what he did was he would take multiple pictures or videos of the same place from different perspectives and, and then juxtaposing them into a collage, a whole picture. Uh, for his piece, Seven Yorkshire Landscapes, which there's actually a couple pictures uh, in there, Micah, if you want to show those. Um, for this piece, uh, Hockney used multiple video cameras 
simultaneously to capture a single scene. And then each scene is then displayed individually across 18 flat screen monitors. And the scene slowly moves in the same direction, but is out of sync, each at a slightly different angle. Jenny O'Dell writes, when I talked to uh, the workers at the DeYoung Museum about this piece, Seven Yorkshire Landscapes, they mentioned something interesting. Some museum goers who had seen the piece came back to tell them that afterward, everything outside had looked different from what they were used to. The DeYoung Museum is not far from the San Francisco Botanical Garden, and those who visited it directly afterward found that Hockney's piece had trained them to look a certain way, a a notably slow, broken-up, luxuriating in textures. They saw the garden anew in all its kaleidoscopic beauty. Hockney, who defines looking as a positive act, would have been pleased. For him, actual looking was a skill and a conscious decision that people rarely practiced. There was, quote, a lot to see only if you were willing and able to see it. What Jenny O'Dell is pointing out in her book is that John Cage and David Hockney, they help us hear and they help us see things in a new way. They're not creating something new. They're teaching us how to listen, how to see what is already there. They're giving us a new way of hearing, a new way of seeing what is already real and true about us and about the world around us. And their art just shows us that we have forgotten how to truly listen, how to really see. So as we continue through our series in the New Testament letter that we call 1 Corinthians, we essentially see the author of this letter, the Apostle Paul, doing the same thing that John Cage and David Hockney are doing. He's not teaching the church communities in the city of Corinth something new. He's not giving them new information. He is recalibrating their sense of sight and their sense of sound and their sense of understanding because they've been looking at things wrongly. They've been listening to voices that have led them astray and dulled their sight and sense of hearing. Paul writes them this letter to give them a new way of seeing themselves individually, a new way of seeing themselves as a community, and ultimately a new way of seeing themselves as followers of Jesus, both individually and as a community. So, so in this passage that we're looking at, the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians, we'll see uh, a new identity, a new measure, and a new trust. So let's read this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 1. It's on page 952 if you're using one of the Bibles from the table in the back. We've also got it up on the screen. 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those 
who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray once more. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you've given us your word, that we can know you, that we can be in fellowship with you, and that we can place our faith in you. And I pray that as, as we're walking into this letter, as we've committed ourselves to, to months together as a church community to learn from your word, that you would, uh, you would bear much fruit in our lives through this, and even today that you would bear fruit, that we would see this as more, more than an introduction, more than, more than a way to understand a letter, but we would see ourselves and that we would see you, and that ultimately uh, we would believe in you, that we would trust you for the most basic of things, that, that we need you to do anything. So would you show us our need for you, and would you show us the way that you have supplied that need in Jesus today? We ask it in his beautiful name. Amen. Well, as we saw in the introduction to the whole book last week, the, the church community in the city of Corinth was deeply divided and fractured among themselves. And their divisions were caused by all kinds of things. There were different leaders that people were aligning themselves with. There were different views of sexual and moral ethics uh, there were different understandings of marriage and singleness and the roles of men and women in the church. There were legal disputes that were going on between people within the church community. There were different views of theological issues and how they were practically lived out when it came to communion and when it came to the spiritual gifts, uh, how the Holy Spirit works through us as individuals in a community. And there were different understandings of what the resurrection of Jesus meant uh, as it related to him and also to us as believers in Jesus. So, so just to sum it all up, this church community had a lot of problems, and we're really just skimming the surface there, but the sense that we get is that this church was full of arrogant and immature people who were, at the same time, also disciples of Jesus. And we have to keep this, this tension in mind as we read this letter from Paul, especially the introduction, because there's, there's the problems. <laughs> there's all kinds of problems, and yet their identity really is as disciples of Jesus. And so, so with that in mind, you, you can imagine receiving this letter. What's Paul going to say? How's he going to begin this? How is he going to address these 
problems. And so we can guess that the Corinthian church community had these questions, and, and I think we have them ourselves as readers. And, and the letter begins with what I think is a new way to think about our identity. Our identity, as we know, it's, a, it's our sense of ourselves, who we are, and, and how we think about ourselves, the kind of the grid or the lens that we look at ourselves through. So first, Paul shows us a new way to think about our identity, to see ourselves. He starts it with himself. He says in verse 1, I'm called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. So we know, just really briefly, the apostle Paul uh, was a church planter. He was a pastor who planted many churches all around the Roman Empire among non-Jewish people groups, though that was made up of Jews and non-Jews in the church communities. Uh, but, but why did Paul do that? Why did he go out and, and become a church planter, become a pastor? Why is he writing a letter to this church in Corinth? And he says, the reason I did that is because God called me to do it. God is the one who called me to do this. Because Paul didn't have this great ambition to become a church planter, a pastor. He didn't, he didn't have an, an ambition to become famous or to build himself a platform or to become some kind of influential leader within the Roman Empire. He certainly didn't have an ambition to become arrested and beaten and, and all kinds of things over the course of his life, but but we learned early on in the book of Acts that that Paul violently opposed the early followers of Jesus, that he pursued them, he persecuted, he put them in prison, he was complicit in the deaths of Christians, if not actively involved in them, until what? Until he was called by God. And his life changed. He was given a new identity. What Jesus essentially says to him when he calls him is, you up to this point have been against me. You have opposed me. Now you will be for me. You will belong to me, and I'm sending you out on this mission to take my good news to the nations. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, Paul's authority as an apostle as a messenger of Jesus is being questioned by the Corinthian church, and he's reminding them of his identity as, as an apostle of Jesus. He's reminding them, why did I come to you in the first place? But he's also, I think, reminding himself. He's reminding himself of his identity, because think about this. He knows that he's being criticized. He knows that people are talking about him and that they're tearing him down. They're, they're um, criticizing and questioning his ability to lead them because he's maybe not as well-spoken or as smart or as you know, learned as other people that are coming in and leading. He's being questioned. And when we are in a position like that, we have to return again and again to who Jesus says we are, not how others view us or what other people are saying about us or even how we might think about ourselves. So Paul speaks about, and he's, he's teaching himself, this is what it looks like to see yourself with a new identity. And, and then 
In the second verse, Paul gives the Corinthian church, here's a new way to think about your own identity. He knows that their divisions, the things that are tearing them apart, they're ultimately rooted in a wrong view of who they are, who they are in Jesus, because they've been shaping their identities based on who's the leader that we follow and, and who do we hang out with and who are we sleeping with and, and what are our ambitions and what are our successes and how well are we doing at this or how well are they not doing at that. They've shaped their identity really uh, around, it's, it's based on the culture in, in the city and the region that surrounds them. That's where their identity is really being shaped But rather than starting with their problems, Paul goes to the root. He doesn't start talking immediately about, here's all the issues. He goes to the root. He says, you need to have, you have to think about your identity. You have this new way to see who you are. He says, to the church of God, not the church of Paul, not the church of Apollos, not the church of Peter, the church of God that is in the city of Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Again, why did Paul go to this city in the first place? Because Jesus called him and Jesus sent him. And why are the people in the Corinthian church, why are they reading it? Because Jesus called them into his family, because he saved them, because he has done a work on them. So the whole relationship between Paul and the church in Corinth is based in Jesus, in what Jesus has done and what he's called them to. And, and that's the whole relationship that we have as, as the church of Jesus. It's not about how much are we like one another, how much do we prefer this or that. Our whole relationship to one another in the church needs to be rooted in Jesus, his calling for us. Paul says, you belong to God. You were sanctified in Jesus. That means he's telling them, you've been set apart. You've been called out. You've been separated from where you were into a new place. You've been, you've been set apart for Jesus, you belong to him. You're, a por- you're important and you're unique because Jesus has declared you to be that. He said, this is who you are now. This is, this is your position. It's, it's said in the past tense. If, if you're a Greek person or a Greek scholar, you, you could see in the actual Greek verb tense that it's said in the past tense tense. This is something that has been accomplished. Not you are being saved or you're being sanctified. You have been made holy. You have been set apart by God. You've already received the the approval and the acceptance of God in Jesus. And then he says, you've been called to be saints. Just like I was called to be an apostle, you've been called to be saints holy people, your identity, your purpose has been given to you, not through your own initiative, not through your own ideas, but through Jesus calling on you. And so rather than having to work and labor to build their own identity or to manufacture their own sense of purpose and belonging, they've already been given this. They've already received this in the gracious call of God in Jesus. And this wasn't just for some of them, 
right? It wasn't, it wasn't just for the rich people within their community or the educated people in their community. It was for all of them within this church community. And it wasn't just for the church in Corinth. There was an arrogance in their church community that said, we have things that other churches, other communities don't have. But Paul says, no, we've all been called to be saints. All the people who've been called by Jesus and who've called upon his name, they, we all share in this. We're all unified in Jesus. So you all belong to Jesus together, and you're called to unity together with everyone who follows Jesus. You're no better or no worse than anyone who follows Jesus. Now, a good question for us to ask when we gather together is, why am I here today? Why did I come to be together with the Town Church family today? And, and I would guess a lot of us want to work on stuff in our lives. We have, we have stuff going on, and we want to we work on it. We want to um, get fixed. We want to be happy. We want to see uh, God at work in our lives. We want to follow Jesus faithfully. But, but I just want to call you to this. When you ask yourself the question, why am I going to go gather together with the family of Jesus today? It, it has to start with Jesus. It has to start with who he is and what he's done for us. Our identity doesn't start with us. Our identity begins with Jesus. We don't make our own identity and we don't maintain our identity. We are who we are because of God's initiating work in our lives. And, and as the church in Corinth needed to hear that, we need to hear that today, and we need to be reminded of that constantly. And, and this is how Paul finishes this. He says, this is who I am in Jesus. This is who you are in Jesus. Now, receive the grace and the peace that can only come in Jesus. Only Jesus gives us the favor and the love of God. Only Jesus can give us wholeness and peace only Jesus. And he says, receive it. Receive it. Hold out your hands and receive it, the identity of who you are in Jesus. And that's before you start to deal with any of the stuff that's going on in your life. We need a new way of seeing our identity. Next, we need a new way of measuring uh, or we could say we need a new system of value. Uh, Paul keeps going on in his greeting. He's talking to the church community about what he thinks of them. When he thinks about them, this is what he thinks. Now, these people may be immature, they may be arrogant, but I don't think they're dumb. Um, they know that there's tension in their community. They know that some of them have been talking to Paul about the disunity and the tension that's going on in their community. They know Paul knows what's going on. And, and they also know there's tension between themselves as a church community and Paul. So, so they get this letter. It's like when somebody sends you a text or an email or it's your boss or something. They're like, hey, can you come see me? You know, quickly, you know, I, I need to talk to you about something. And usually my impulse is like, oh no, like something, I'm in trouble. 
I, there's something going on, I did something wrong. And I, and I get the sense that the Corinthian church probably is in the same frame of mind when they receive this letter from Paul. As they begin to question him, as they begin to pull away from him and to dismiss him, he sends them this letter and they know there's some tension. Now, if I'm in Paul's position, uh, I feel like I would struggle with frustration. I gave you 18 years of my life, he says later in this letter, that I feel like I'm a father to you. He loves them deeply, and so as there's tension between them, I imagine that, that as he's writing, he can feel the frustration, anger, disappointment. I think if it was me, my feelings would be hurt, and that would, that would have to come through in some way. This is what we call tone, right? You ever write something on a text or an email, and you're about to send it, and you're like, maybe I should just go through it one more time. This is wisdom right here from the Lord. Uh, <laughs> go through that one more time and just read it and go, maybe, maybe I'm letting a little bit too much of my frustration uh, come through. I need to just tone it down a little bit. But I like to let people know. I mean, I wrote an email this week that I had to craft like five different times. Uh, And I do want to let people know how I'm feeling, and especially if they did something wrong in my mind. I want to let them know. But here's what Paul says in verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. I am grateful to God always, constantly for you. How can Paul be continually grateful to God for these immature, messy, uh, insubordinate, rowdy people? And that's putting it lightly. Because they belong to Jesus. Because they have been given the grace of Jesus. He's not measuring them by their behavior. He's measuring them by God's gracious gift that they have been given. David Pryor says, Paul looks at the Corinthian church as it is in Christ before he looks at anything else that is true of the church. He's basing his measurement, his, the way he evaluates the church in Corinth in gratitude, in their identity, not in their performance, not in how they're doing. And he keeps going in verse 5. I give thanks to God that in every way you are enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is really incredible about this passage here is that what Paul says he is grateful for, all the things that he just listed there, they're all the things that have caused the division and the tension within the church community. Because the problems that the church community is having, they all trace back to a misuse of the things that God has given to them. They've been made rich in Jesus. They've been made wealthy through what Jesus has given to them in all knowledge and all speech 
And, and Paul saying, I've already seen how God's grace has been proved and confirmed. I can see evidence in your lives of God at work in you. And he says that as a community, they're not lacking in any spiritual gift as they wait for Jesus to return as he promised. And as we'll see as we go through this letter, it's all the things that they're struggling with is, is what Paul says. I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful to see this in you. The problem isn't with what God has given the Corinthian church. The problem is what this community has done with what God has given them. The Corinthians valued the knowledge and the the wisdom, the speech, the spiritual gifts, the freedom they've been given in Christ. They value it, but they're measuring that value in the wrong way. There There was a twisting of their their values. They, they took what God gave them in Jesus and they tried to use it for their own personal gain, their own personal pleasure to promote themselves, to benefit themselves. But all of that twisting and misuse of God's gift, it came at the expense of the life and the health of the church community. They're using their gifts in the wrong way. This is where all the dysfunction and the division is coming from in their church. So, so Paul is going to address all of this stuff, right? That's why this letter is so long, because there's a lot of problems, and Paul is going to address it. But first, Paul says, you need to have a new way of measuring, measuring yourselves. You need to have the way that you value the things God has given to you. You need to recalibrate that. That has to be reformed in your life and heart. And Paul does that himself, Rather than grading them on their performance or what they've achieved or what they've left undone, he says, your worth, your value comes from what God has done for you. Your worth, your value, your identity comes from what Jesus has already given to you. So he's practicing himself right here, what he wants them to do. He's giving them an example. He wants to see this grow in them as a church. I love this quote from Gordon Fee. He says, to delight in God for his working in the lives of others, even in the lives of those with whom we feel compelled to disagree, is sure evidence of being the recipients of God's mercy. Man, is there, isn't this a time when we need that, right? to delight in God for what he's doing in the lives of other people, even in the lives of people that we disagree with. That's evidence of God's grace and mercy and understanding of that in our own lives. In Jesus, we have been given a new identity. We've been been given a new heart. We're, We're new people, a new creation. And in Jesus... We're given a new way to measure ourselves, how to determine our value and and the way we think about how we're doing, how we're performing, and how other people are doing and how they're performing. And finally, we've been given a new way to see what is trustworthy. Uh, I've been listening to this audio book by this guy named David Goggins, and he's like a Navy SEAL Special Forces elite ultra athlete and he kind of sounds like Mr. T 
Do you guys know who Mr. T is? He just has this gravelly voice and he shouts motivational things at you. Um, David Goggins is like if Mr. T cussed a lot. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of like you're being verbally assaulted by this guy and I listen to it while I'm running or you know, doing, doing stuff. <laughs> and, and Mr. Goggins, uh, I have to call him that because he's like Mr. T, Mr. Goggins... Uh, at one point in his, and this is kind of the story, his own story, his memoir, and, and he says, no one is going to come help you. No one is going, no one's coming to save you. And, and that's without any of the additional language that he throws in there. Uh, his message, his, we could say his gospel, uh, is that you cannot trust anyone else, that you can only trust yourself. For those of us who have been hurt, who have been let down, who have been abused and mistreated and betrayed and abandoned, I think we can see the sense in those words. Like it makes sense because we're tired of being let down by other people. And there's this appeal to what what Goggins and other self-help people will tell you is that if you just buckle down, if you just get your stuff in order, and if you do the work, you can accomplish whatever you set your minds to. And that is one way to see the world, and it's one way to think about ourselves and other people, but I think it's a really brutal way to live. And I, I would hardly call it good news. And here at the end of his greeting, the Apostle Paul, he shows us another way to live, another way to think about who we can trust. He says, God will sustain you to the end, guiltless, faultless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, is that someone can help us. Someone has come to help us. Someone has come to save us and to offer us this unbelievable gift that we can trust in someone besides ourselves and besides other people. We can trust in something beyond our own ability, beyond our own willpower, beyond our own strength, beyond our own grit. And God, isn't that amazing to know that we can trust in someone beyond our own strength? For the church community in Corinth and for us today, this is a, this is a new way of thinking about trust a new way of thinking about what we depend on. And this is, this is really the basics. This is really what a life of following Jesus is all about. You're made new. You're given a new identity. You're given a new way of looking at everything else, everyone else, the values, the way you measure things, the way you determine things. And we've been given a new reason, a new basis for hope and trust this is, this is the gospel. This is what's freely and graciously given to us in Jesus. So, so going back to the beginning and thinking about a performance of a musical piece, that, that in the gospel, 
in the good news of Jesus today, we have heard something that's more compelling and more beautiful than any piece of music. And, and so as we go from here, as we go into our lives to be renewed in, in listening and, and really hearing what's going on and what is true about us, because we're given a new way of everything in Jesus. And thinking about seeing things. And the good news of Jesus, we've seen something. We've been given a picture that's more glorious than any photograph or, or video collage or painting. And so as we go into our homes, as we go into our neighborhoods, as we go into our workplaces, as we're together with our gospel communities... You, you have been given the gift of getting to look at everything differently now, of seeing things in a crisper, more compelling way, a new way to hear, a new way to see. And by the grace of God, we get to, to live that out. That's, that's who we are. That's our life together as the church of Jesus. And I, I love getting to do that with you, that, that we can take something that's the basics of our faith and just be called into seeing things and be renewed in the way we look at things, the way we hear things, and how exciting that is, how compelling that is. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us your grace in Jesus. There is no greater gift than to belong to you, that we can trust you completely, that, that in the last day when we stand before you, we won't stand before you on the basis of how well we've kept the rules, how many things we got done, how many, even how many people got baptized or how many churches got planted. We stand before you without fault because of Jesus. And I pray that you would just renew our delight in Jesus. That we would just be glad to know, to live in the reality that we've been given a new heart, a new identity, and a new way of measuring everything, and a new trust that goes beyond our own abilities or, or what other people can do for us. Would you change us? Would you transform us? And keep doing this work in us because you are faithful. And would we be faithful as we follow you together? We ask it in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.